They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two Bald Pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I am Jeff Sinabaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. And we are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or as we like to call it, the ELCA. You know, Joe, I'm sure as time passes, we will continue to reference our dear old friend, Dr. Martin Luther. But today is the Marty episode. Woo! Marty! Marty! Today we are going to talk about the Martin Luther. And for many of you who might not know who Martin Luther is, he is the guy who started the Reformation, who had the gall to say what he thought, acted upon it, stood firm in his beliefs, and because of that, we are here today. Jeff and I might not even exist if it wasn't for the Lutheran Church. Well, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't go that far, but... So thanks, everybody. This was great. <laughs> no, so I guess just to kick it off, so I mean, people can Google all about Martin Luther. I think we'll just kind of talk a little bit about our impressions. Since we are at the, uh, you know, entering the sixth century of uh, Protestantism. So, I mean, I guess my question, just to lead us off, is, you know, was Luther leading a Reformation movement? Or was he just trying to to make things work on the ground? I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Joe? What are your impressions? My impression was that he never really set out to break away from the Catholic Church. I'd agree with that, totally. Yeah. So Martin Luther was a Catholic monk, and he made that decision uh, from law school to the priesthood, after a violent thunderstorm where he thought that God saved his life or spared his life from from dying during this violent thunderstorm. And he, he entered the monastery, and he was a talented individual. I mean, he was smart. He was, he was bright. He was charismatic. He, he really uh, stood be, behind his beliefs, and because of that, he gained popularity within the, the church and the people of the church. So I think he he saw things within the church that he wanted to change to reform, and it it just was the 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 people who oversaw things that really said this is not what we want to do, Luther. We, this is not who we are. We need to do these other things that you're against, and because of that, he was basically kicked out of the church. Yeah, I think a lot is made of the ninety five theses, and without them, um. Luther probably wouldn't have gained the popularity he did or gotten the traction to be able to continue to produce the wealth of material that he published over the course of his uh, career life. But I would say most people don't know what's in the 95 Theses. Uh, right. You know, they always think it's like, these are the things that are wrong with the church. And it's not really about that. I mean, that document is not about that. It's about um, the nature of forgiveness and what does that actually mean. I mean, I think Luther was personally overridden by guilt in his own life, I would say, deathly afraid of the wrath of God. And so as a monk, you know, he would say, you know, no one— no one did more monkery than me. I mean, he was he he did it to the full. I mean, and he still felt 
lost or unable to be able to, um, you know, come to the, uh, the threshold of thinking God would accept him in any real way um, until he started teaching scripture. And then he learned uh, mostly through Paul, I think, but I think, you know, other parts of scripture too. I know he was really into the Psalms. Found God's compassion, grace, mercy, forgiveness, love, acceptance, um, things that we take for granted and kind of start with, I think, in the Protestant tradition, especially as Lutheran Christians. We really emphasize grace and forgiveness and mercy. Uh, But I think, you know, once he kind of realized that or had a breakthrough or had an aha moment or the spirit opened it up for him or the word broke in, I mean, whichever way you want to describe that, uh, moment for him. It did change the way he looked at things. I mean, he started the 95 Theses with when Jesus said repent, that meant our whole lives should be one of repentance and not groveling before God, but but turning ourselves over to the mercy of God that we know in Christ. And so he, he wouldn't back down from that, and that kind of led to all kinds of other things. Right. When we look at the church today, not only within the ELCA, but other denominations, other forms of faith. Do you think it's time for another Reformation? And if so, what does that look like? Ah, that's great. Uh, yeah, I think in a couple of different ways, the answer is yes. I, mostly, I, I think a lot of people today are not asking the same questions that we were asking 500 years ago. You know, that was a society that was so intertwined with the life of the church where, you know, ecclesiastical power and secular power were virtually intertwined, almost the same. People were uneducated. People had a real fear of of death uh, in the sense of, you know, life was short and tragedy struck often in their lives uh, and were kind of consumed by a medieval understanding of, of God judging them all the time. I mean, certainly there's an element of that today, but don't you think most people kind of go, meh? Yeah. That's just a different starting place, I think. I mean, I don't know if you read Phyllis Tickle, but she had this book a number of years ago that was all about every 500 years, it's time to clean out the attic again. Mm. I'll look for the title. We can put it in the notes. But, uh, you know, we're due. Yeah, we're due. Yeah. So I, I'd say we're definitely up for... I mean, we have this kind of always reforming mantra, you know, semper reformata. But there's lots of things we can reform uh, in the life of the church. And I, I think one of them is just the, the divisions that still remain between us. Because for a lot of people on the outside, one, they don't see them or care about them or make any distinctions themselves. Right. Yeah, the denominational alliance it no longer exists. If, if a family is moving to a new community, most likely it is, uh, they're going to be looking at what does a church do and does this church fit the needs of my life and my family rather than, oh, I was part of a Lutheran church before, I'm going to this new town, that means I'm going to go to the Lutheran church. That That's not an automatic anymore. Yeah, no, I agree. So, I mean, I think part of reform that needs to be done is we need to, like, update our questions, you know, we're not, we're not still asking, you know, why Protestants get it right and why other Christians get it wrong, because uh, it's, it's foolish. In a lot of ways, I don't know, I mean, our, our people certainly, and I think even us as leaders and people in the church, I mean, don't we live a little bit more eclectic lives now? Uh, so it's like you can, 
you can learn something from somebody that's different from you that you may have missed in your other experience. And we've kind of take that as a value, right? So it's, so, you know, we both grew up in the Lutheran Christian tradition, which has its own set of liturgies and hymns and, you know, traditions that we look forward to and, and live out. But uh, it's also been fun, at least for me over the years, to meet Christians of other backgrounds. And then you see it lived out a different way a little bit. And you say, oh, that's kind of interesting. Or I definitely wouldn't do that. But, right. you know, there's, there's those kinds of things that are cool. And even just in an a interreligious landscape we now also live in, um, you know, you think of some little town in medieval Europe, you didn't have interactions with world religions. Right. You know, even in small American towns a few decades ago, you didn't have interactions like that. And now we have interactions with people like that that live on our streets, uh, in, in our neighborhoods, our towns. There's uh, an opportunity for a way to get together in ways we never probably even thought possible before. And rather than either um, just defaming each other or being violent towards one another, we could actually learn something. That doesn't mean you, you go back on what you believe, but you can certainly see the world in a wider landscape, I think. Yeah, I was uh, at a meeting the other day, and there was this uh, individual who was part of the meeting and never met her before, but we got to talking, and towards the end of the meeting, she said, I just need to tell you something. I said, "What? what's that? Is everything okay? She's like, yeah, everything's okay, but I think I need to let you know that I'm a witch. And I said, oh, what does that mean? And she went on to explain what it means and... and uh, you know, not the typical hat and riding a broom type witch, but it's it's more of a spiritual practice. And she said, you know, my teacher is very Jesus centric, so I could say that I may be a Christian witch, whatever that may mean. Whatever that means. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, she she yeah. uh, you know seemed like a good person, and she seemed like. But I don't think that would have been a a conversation I would have been able to have ten or fifteen years ago, even. Of someone saying right. to a to a Christian pastor, "Hey, I'm a witch, and uh, you know, I just want to talk about that a little bit and, and tell you what it means." But yeah, I think so many of our experiences are defined by what we're not. So we would say, you know, I'm I'm not a witch, you know, uh, or, you know, I'm a I'm a Christian. Or I would say I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I'm not a Presbyterian. I'm a Lutheran. Uh, I'm not from the South, I'm from the North. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I grew up in German Lutheran congregations, not in, Nor you know, Norwegian or Swedish Lutheran congregations. Right, Even right. though, you know, in today's climate, who cares? But, it, but, you know, those things mattered at one time, and it's not to take away from them. But I think the questions need to change, and I think... Mostly, don't you think most people are looking for a faith that matters? Yes. You know, just like you said before, uh, you know, does it does it change the way you live and look at the world? Does it help you build other people up? Does it serve people in your community in need? Or is it just a, a nostalgic shelter from the world around you? And, and, and I think this is something that faith leaders, whether pastors or lay leaders or deacons in, in the church really need to pay attention to because we look at the the history of uh, attendance and membership in our church and it continues to decline year by year by year and I don't know if that's saying something particularly about what we are doing or just where we are in our 
country and around the world right now. But it, if we, as church leaders, know why our churches exist and why we do what we do, and we can really be advantageous with that, I, I think it really will make a difference on when someone new comes into the community, you know, they would check us out and say, this church really knows what they're doing. Or, you know, like we said on an earlier podcast, uh, practice those opportunities to talk about your faith and, and really live that out in your, in your daily life. Yeah, I think partly, um, you know, what we have inherited is we've not really needed, uh, and I put that in like air quotes, needed to do evangelism in a real way. Because, I mean, we'll look at Luther himself. He lived in a completely Christian environment and was trying to reform or reposition the way the church was operating among a Christian society. And so um, the churches that we've inherited are a lot of ways still operating in that scheme, even though the environment around it has totally changed. And then you have, uh, you know, when people came to this country and started planting churches, at least I think of the, the Lutheran congregations that we have, or at least a good share of them. I mean, like communities of people came over from other parts of the world, set up a church to help support their new community, and for the most part, uh, survived by, you know, continuing on in the next generation. It wasn't right. It wasn't reaching out to new people. It wasn't... Um, it was reproducing. It was reproducing, yeah. It was marrying and having children and bringing them up in the faith. And I think a lot of our congregations, whether we have this uh, as something we're, you know, actually aware of or it's more subliminal, we have this understanding that, like, okay, the kids that are coming up now are going to replace the adults that are there now. And that's certainly not true. People graduate high school and move on to something else. Right, right. Uh, whether it's college or military service or some other kind of service thing or, or just getting a job somewhere, people move away. And um, it, it we don't have the same feeder system of generations that the way a lot of our congregations were set up. Now, we've done a lot of mission congregations, too. Uh, but I think a lot of our China church culture is kind of geared around that. So, yeah, like you would have a, a traditionally German-American congregation or a traditionally Swedish American congregation or something along those lines. And, um, you know, that's certainly not America today. No. Uh, uh, we've got a wealth of varieties of people from all kinds of different places and different backgrounds. I mean, it's one of the things I think is kind of cool about where we live, really. But we, we don't practice that in our, our congregations or um, see that as a, a value of something to tap into. So we got to learn that. I mean, I think the uh, one of the other amazing things is in the past century, or at least the last several decades, I mean, the churches in Africa and, and South America and Asia have really taken off, and um, which includes Lutheran ones. Yep, yep. I mean, there are more—I love this statistic. There are actually more Lutheran Christians in Tanzania than there are Lutheran Christians in North America. And people are like, what are you talking about? But it's true. It's true. And it's true because they do evangelism. Right, right. They do mission work. They do service in the community. They draw in new people. And um, if we're going to be a, a more global church, which is something I think is of value, uh, especially as we enter into this sixth century of Protestantism, uh, we got to learn from our sisters and brothers in other places that do this well. Right. 
and we're not we don't need to be a eurocentric or american centric expression of christian faith we have a christian faith with a a background a history certainly but um one of the interesting things about christian faith is it's not tied to a particular ethno or or language background It, it spreads everywhere which is Kind of the whole Pentecost spirit, and we could certainly learn that. Yes. So what we learned from the the documentary last night, Martin Luther, the idea that changed the world is that he really uh, changed the way that the sermon was presented in worship. So he he saw that not many people within the pews ca- knew about the Bible, and so it was really a a teaching time. And so he he adapted the way that he did things in order to really teach about God and about scripture within the context of worship. And so we have held on to that value over the last 500 years. And we see that happening with most denominations uh, across the the world. And uh, maybe now is the time to say, is that really a a good practice? Is the sermon, the way that it currently exists in in the context of our worship, really the right way to do things? And and to be bold and, and brave enough to say, I mean, to evaluate it and say, if it's not, then what are some of the other options that we have and, and how can we take that to, to the next level? Uh, a meme that I found a number of years back that I, I loved, it showed um, a classroom and it said, you know, 100 years ago, and it showed rows of chairs and, and desks. And then it said, and then that, that was like on the left panel and then on the right panel, it said today, and it showed kids working together in a, a cluster around a, a common table. And then it said the workplace and it showed assembly lines and it showed, you know, people working in, again, straight rows behind a desk and something like that. And then today they showed people working in a conference room together collaboratively. And then it showed the church and it showed pews. And then on the right panel, it was a question mark. Mm. And I just thought that was, was good. Because yeah. that's, those are kind of the things we need to think about. I mean, one of the other things that he really liked and pushed for and, and uh, articulated was the, the way that music could be utilized. Oh, yes. Um, you know, in that time period, it was really the choir that sang, and really the monks were the, were the choir. So it was, there was a separation between the people and the clergy in that way, too, or at least the ordered and invented congregational singing, and and it wasn't just uh, praise songs like you hear today, where you repeat the same line over and over and over again. He said you, we could use this as a teaching tool, so that people could walk out singing the songs of the faith and actually teach the faith that way. Yeah. And uh, I know I have a lot of favorite hymns. Uh, you probably do too. And when you start to sing them and start to internalize what they mean, you say, "Oh, yeah, that's what God's about, and that's what we're about." Is followers of Jesus and the way we're supposed to live in the world. So, I, I mean, those those are great gifts for the church, but also is that what's effective now in a way that connects with uh, folks? I mean, who knows? I mean, that's why we got to keep adapting. Yep. And I want to invite you, the listener, to join in conversation with us about this. There's a couple ways you can do about that. One is just leaving a comment in this blog post and let us know what are some of your favorite or not so favorite things about the church and the way that we do church. And I think it would be interesting for Jeff and I to receive some of that feedback and we'll share it on a upcoming podcast episode. You could also leave us a message on Facebook, either on our page or in the, in the message app to let us know, again, some of your favorite or not so favorite things about the church. And 
and really the question, what does a church re- need to reform today? Uh, I think that's a, it's an amazing question to consider, to discern together, to contemplate. Um, you know, we've been at this as the Lutheran Church for 500 years, and we have an idea of what, what the church may look like in our context, you know, other contexts it looks a little different, but uh, what does the next 500 years look like, and, and how can we uh, be an effective church in the next 500 years? So many times we look at the way the church that we know, and we we feel like it's static, or like this is just the way it's always been. I mean, one of the interesting things about Lutherans, as with even within the Protestant tradition, is it was really set up and kind of as kind of like an interim movement. So like, you know, there wasn't a real plan. I mean, Luther kind of made it up as he went along, and, and so did his counterparts. I mean, he empowered princes to serve as bishops because they didn't have anybody to ordain people, and mm. they were trying to figure out what that means. And you don't really have those systems um, emerging within Lutheran ecclesiologies until you get state churches, uh, you know, that have that broke off from Rome. In North America, I mean, there's all kinds of different varieties of the way that we were arranged or organized. You know, that started kind of solidify in the last few decades, I think. But but also, I mean, it's not like other Protestants, you think of their names, usually it's by the way they're organized. So, you know, a congregational church, you know how that's organized. Yeah. Or an Episcopal church, you know how that's organized. Or a Presbyterian church, you know how that's organized because there's a presbytery that oversees things. You know, we don't have that. We have kind of a theological idea and a tradition of reform. So we have this whole idea that grace, God's love shining through with, with mercy and forgiveness is kind of the center of everything. Everything else needs to support that or it needs to get out of the way. Right, right. So it's it's interesting, uh, for sure, uh, especially when we think about where we're going or what we might want to be about uh, in the future. I mean, I think we definitely need to figure out how to reposition ourselves within our current context in a way that actually answers the question, how can a, you live a faith that matters in the world? But at least that's, you know, my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> that's my two cents, folks. So when we envision and dream about the future of the church and what it may look like, maybe not 500 years, because that's, that's a long time away, but uh, e- even in the next, say, 25 years, if we could design the church the way that we think would be most effective in the world, what would that look like? Well, again, I think it needs to break down the barriers that we've kind of artificially inserted. So if you are in a town that has five or six churches, all with a different name on the door, it's worth asking in the 21st century, why? Um, Is there a way, not to say that each congregation doesn't have its own mission, which I'm sure they do, but is there a way that you can serve a common mission together that, you know, is the church in that place, you know, and maybe... And again, not to say that everybody doesn't have a Sunday school and everybody doesn't have uh, some kind of way to serve the the hungry or something like that, but maybe there's a more coordinated way that that could be accomplished or a way that, you know, celebrates the different ways we live that out in our town or, or, you know, wherever we are. Doesn't see each other as competition. I mean, I think we're getting away from the, at least it seems in the Northeast, we're getting away from the church shopping culture because... Mostly people just aren't interested. <laughs> uh, used to be, at least when I started 15 years ago, people would move into town, visit all the churches, and then decide which one they wanted to go to. Now they just move in and out of town, and who knows if they go to church or not. Right, right. But 
Uh, that's certainly one thing that I think would would make a difference. So breaking down the denominational barriers. Yeah, and, and it's not even that they have to go away, and it's not even I don't I'm not talking about a church merger where we're all one kind of super Protestant denomination. I don't think more institution is the right answer either. Uh, but is there a way at least locally we can say this, well, this is what it looks like to be the church in this place together? Yeah. Um, and then we you know we have our congregations that also serve their their people in that regard too. When I look around my town in Gardner, there are 16 churches. Now, some of them are, are bigger, you know, some of them are just kind of little house churches or whatever, but there's 16 of them. And I'd say, I think there are six right now churches that have a meal at least once a month. You know what? Most of them are dinner. Some of them are lunches. But I, I talked with a couple of the different ministry leaders about that and some, some of them are struggling because of their space or location or, or whatnot. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we just had one location for everybody to go to? And we put out a schedule and said, these are the meals right. and you're invited to come. And then each church would come in and execute that meal and, and maybe even put on a schedule of, you know, invite people from the community to, to be in part of that as well or, or whatnot. I, I don't think people are against that, but... It takes time and energy and coordination to, to make it work and make it work well. But I think there is some fear that if we don't have them come to our physical building, then will they know that our church building exists? I mean, it's sometimes feeding the hungry is like a recruitment, like, oh, for nice to you, if we feed you, then we'll come to my church. And that's the goal. So you can come to my church. Right. And that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. Right. And I think we also have this opinion, and I think we inherited this from Luther, unfortunately, that you have to agree on everything to do anything together. <laughs> uh, you know, there's that famous story that was in that show we watched last night about, um, you know, the Protestant leaders at the time got together to discuss what they thought about theology, and they agreed on most things until they got to communion. And Luther was more of, it is the body of Christ, because Jesus says, this is my body, and didn't want to listen to what anybody else had to say basically stormed out of the room. Yeah. Um, and hey, that is alive and well in the church, for sure. <laughs> and you've told me some stories about other clergy you've interacted with who, you know, because they disagreed with you on either theology or practice, didn't want anything to do with you. And I've experienced that also. And I'm sure the listeners have experienced that in their own lives with people that they know. And I mean, if we, if we have unity in Christ, which Jesus already says we do— I'm not saying look past those things, but we, the divisions we have are less than the unity we already have. Right. So, I mean, one of our great documents that came out of the Reformation period is the Augsburg Confession, and one of those things defines the church as where the word is preached and where the sacraments are administered. And every church does that in a whole variety of ways. Yeah. And there is a lot of different uh, theological points on what even preaching is or what even sacraments are, or even not calling them sacraments. But Christians have baptism. Christians have some celebration of the Lord's Supper in whatever way they understand that. And, and Christians gather around Scripture and, and consider it somehow. So, okay, if that's all it means to be together in unity, the finer details of what we agree and disagree with each other on— uh, I don't want to say it's a moot point, but it's certainly not the most important point. You know, if we can still, even in spite of our differences, are ways we think about differently the way we might apply that into our lives and move past that to still serve the people in our community that are in need together and be the church, that would be huge. Right. 
I think that would actually be an amazing testament of, of what Christian life is about. I totally agree. We, we, we really need to look beyond that, our differences, and, and find ways to, to work together. And, and as we kind of move along Luther's life and, and see that the importance of the establishment of marriage, you know, that he uh, was married, he found his spouse, they had children together, they opened their house for hospitality. And that was new. I mean, that was not what was done in those days. Right. So, I mean, that talk about change. Uh, that was a sea change. And, uh, you know, I love the fact that uh, in Wittenberg, Germany, every June they have a huge celebration, and it's it's not a Reformation festival. They have a celebration of the Luther wedding. Oh, wow. People from town that try out for years to get the parts to be in the yeah, play, yeah. you know, and then they have the big parade and everything. Like, that's cool. I mean, you know, so it's 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 different. If we're afraid of change and that it's going to change too much, we can be we can be a little bit more open to that. Things change in the life of, of human development and um, culture and community and what that looks like as we try to be faithful. And uh, certainly in our families, I mean, so many of our families undergo so much pain and hardship and division over things that really shouldn't matter all that much. But boy, it's just so painful. Whether it's one goes to one church and one goes to another church or one doesn't go to church anymore or, you know, people have different sexual orientations or whatever it is that drives people apart. I mean, isn't isn't family a gift of God and shouldn't we celebrate that? And I think the Luthers remind us of that in a way to look at things differently, perhaps. No, and, and I think that it is important to kind of take those things into consideration and, and take a look and see how our families are, are, are beneficial to the work that we do and, and what does that mean and how can we be supportive of not only our individual families, the families that you and I have, but also the families within our congregation and to recognize that everybody's going through something within in, in their life and, and to have that mindset of hospitality, not only within the context of our worship on Sunday morning, but the context of every day, you know, and, and how do we utilize the gifts that God has blessed us with to benefit the people who are within our family units, within our church or even our community? I mean, we have a lot of people in our lives. I would, I can't think of anybody that doesn't have somebody that know that they're close to either by relation or friendship that has not gone through a divorce or, you know, the breakup of a family and what a painful, horrible thing that is in people's lives. And, uh, you know, the church shouldn't be shunning them or sending them away or telling them what terrible people they are. I mean, I certainly wouldn't say that God wants us to get divorced, but at the same time, we should be there to pick up the pieces for each other and, and help each other through that pain. You, you just don't see it a lot of times. Right. So continuing to move on in, in Luther's life, you know, he had this this marriage. He continued to write and, and document. Let's talk about his writings a little bit. Uh, I mean, he wrote a lot, and there are a lot of things for us to look at and to see and to understand uh, what he wrote, what what he understood about God, about the church, about theology, about himself. I know you get a copy of Luther's works, and it's how many volumes? It's like 50 volumes or something like that? I think it's even more than that. I yeah, think. yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, it's something yeah. ridiculous. Or you get, every once in a while, they'll come out with like a summary, like this is the best compilation of Luther's writings, and you look at right, it, and exactly. the book's like three inches <laughs> thick. You know? right, exactly. 
Good grief. My colleague used to say Luther is one of those people right, that never right, had an yeah, unpublished yeah, thought. Yeah, I, right, I was right. thinking, yeah, it's yeah. about right. And, and yeah. even I think I, I heard at some point or read at some point that he would write something, he would publish it, and then he'd go back and be like, I disagree with that. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With himself. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, I think one thing just to keep in mind is he was not a systematic theologian, so he wasn't out to write a theology of Christian life. He was a Bible scholar, and he was a priest who was, uh, you know, trying to help congregations move through their work. So he had a pastoral heart, and he was a preacher, and he worked with texts. So he's a little bit all over the map, on, and doesn't have a concise... I mean, people like to give Luther a concise theology, but his theology right, really is right, the right, summary right. of all of his work, <laughs> which is just a lot and lot, a lot of volumes. So, I, I mean, I think in that regard, it's hard to pin Luther down on a number of things. But uh, do you have a favorite, something that you like of his that you go back to or you remember at all? I really utilize, have utilized a lot in my ministry and, and my life and even my, my family life. The small catechism. I know it's kind of a, a basic thing, mm-hmm. and it, it's out there, and everybody kind of learns it and and whatnot. But I think it's just a really practical guide for me in, in my life and understanding some of the basics of faith. And in seminary, I took a class on Luther and the catechism, and one of our assignments was to take the catechism and to uh, apply it to a different part of ministry. And what I did is I took it and actually applied it to premarital counseling. And how do you look at premarital counseling through the eyes of the catechism, which was a, a really neat exercise and a really neat practice and something that I have utilized a couple of times. I still need to work on it, refine it to really make it my go-to uh, for premarital counseling, but it, 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 it does work and it, it is a helpful thing, I think, for couples to, to look at. But yeah, so the small catechism and then even going into the larger catechism for me, for personally, for understanding on ministry and and life as a pastor looking at the large catechism. So how about you? I have a few. I really like the freedom of a Christian, which was one of his uh, famous writings from 1520. And what he does is he sets up the Christian life as a paradox that you're both bound and free at the same time. So you are, you're bound to your relationship to God uh, and you're freed from your, your sinfulness. And at the same time, you're, you're bound to your neighbor to serve them as you are, you know, freed from your sinfulness. So it's, it's, I love playing with that. At least, um, that seems to always be kind of in my background when I'm, it's at least running in the background while I'm, you know, working on a text or, uh, talking with people about how we do something. Cause I, I think it's important. Um, it's very, well, he was very much, stuck in this kind of guilt-written piece of, you know, whatever I do, I can't do enough yeah. uh, to please God. But it's not about pleasing God. You please God by helping your neighbor because you've already been freed before God. So I love that. I like to I like to play with that a lot. And, and there's some newer translations that are, aren't in those big, huge volumes that you can get, you know, just as like a little paperback. Using those with groups sometimes is kind of fun. Um, I like that. I really like some of his lesser-known things that, to me, are really helpful. Um, he's got one piece that's called On the Councils of the Church. And what he does is he looks at what are the marks of Christian life. And, um, again, it's Christians share these things. We, we look at them differently, but 
but he outlined seven different things. Like we have the Christians have the cross. That's something that makes Christians distinct from everybody yep. else. Yep. And we have baptism and we have forgiveness and we have the Bible and we have communion and we have prayer and we have ministry. And uh, what does that kind of look like? Well, we got to figure that out. Um, but that's, I, I, I really like that piece. And then just as a historical piece, I, I really like the small cold articles because it's kind of Luther at his, I don't want to say at his best, but when he's really trying to be precise uh, because he was writing at a time where he thought he was, he was ill in the later parts of his life and he didn't think he was going to make it. And he kind of wrote it as his like kind of last will and testament yeah. for the church. Like, if you want to nail me down, this is what I think about stuff. There's some pretty provocative pieces in there because it, a lot of it is not what we actually practice. But if you want to try to understand what Luther was thinking about at the time and the way it related to the wider church, because as we said earlier, neither of us think Luther was trying to start a new church. He was trying to reunite the church in a lot of ways because yeah. he thought, if I could just get the wider church to have a council— and we could we could state our case before the, the Pope and the ministerium, they would get it. Uh, and that just, that never happened. That piece, the small called articles, were like the piece he wanted to contribute to that conversation. In a lot of ways has eluded us, and we don't actually practice a lot of it. But it's, a, but it's interesting. It's just yeah. interesting as a historical piece. The other, the other piece I really like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he actually wrote these, but... Other people wrote down what he said were the Luther table talks. Yeah. Yeah. So this past Lent, I utilized a number of them during our Wednesday night Lenten series. Oh, that's and fun. Just kind of talked a little bit about them. And, and we really had a small group discussion about uh, what they were and, and some of the um, topics that he talked about. And that was kind of fun, too. But but yeah, people wrote down what he I mean. Pe- what he said was was gold and and it was uh, an important documentation of of his ideas that really changed the world so uh that was a pretty pretty neat thing but he wasn't all gravy i mean he did definitely had i mean one of the things about like those specials that they never really quite highlight enough is his relationship with his peers you know i grew up this way and even these specials kind of present luther that way is is kind of like he was this like amazing individual and he did all these things and wrote all these things and he did write a lot and he did have a very strong will and had the charisma to stand out but he was also working on a team yeah yeah so he was you know he was a university professor with a faculty that were supportive not just of his efforts but of each other and they would collaborate to try to work on stuff and his his kind of like number two guy or his best friend probably was was uh melanchthon who stood in at the to write the Augsburg Confession, which is a huge piece for us. And I think just personality-wise, Luther was uh, opinionated and abrasive, and uh, Phil Melanchthon was kind of the, the calming presence. Right. <laughs> He'd smooth it over and kind of make things okay. So if you think of the two of them working in tandem, and then a third guy who uh, was the local pastor, uh, Bugenhagen, in the, in the town church who was really trying to put this into practice, the three of them had both, uh, you know, Melanchthon was a classics professor, so he understood uh, philosophy and, and thought and oration and a way to organize things. And Luther was the Bible guy and was, you know, trying to work on how to communicate scripture and, and make it alive for people. And, and Bugenhagen was the pastor in the church trying to make it work. Yep, yep. Uh, 
And to see those relationships at work is kind of interesting. And then you have Chronic, the painter, who kind of illustrated the whole deal. Um, and if, you, if you're ever able to see some of those pieces of art or, or go to where they are, you start to see the Reformation in a different way as well because it's really, it's really quite fascinating because he would paint a contemporary painting you know, for his time, the 16th century. He'd always put himself in the picture somewhere. But they would be working on something, you know. So there's, you know, in the Wittenberg Town Church, there's this great altarpiece where, uh, you know, the reformers are sitting around the communion table and Luther's reaching back to, to get to receive the wine. And, uh, you know, of course, Chronic is sitting at the table too. And then there, Melanchthon's doing this baptism and, you know, Chronic is standing there as one of the uh, <laughs> godparents. And then, and then there's uh, Bugenhagen doing confession and forgiveness with people. And uh, it, it's and then there's another little illustration beneath it of Luther preaching. And, and the, the illustration of him preaching, it's not about Luther. He's pointing just like how John the Baptist would point, but he's pointing at the cross. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was all about. And then, you know, Chronic and all the town people are people that were actually in the congregation, you know, including the Luther family. They are sitting in the front row. So it's just kind of an interesting way to kind of put some flesh and bones on it. It's not just ideas from long ago that were interesting. Right. But these were people, and they were—there wasn't a script for this. Um, I had an opportunity a few years back um, to be in Wittenberg on several occasions and actually uh, do some ministry there for a couple of weeks and uh, I, that was my overall takeaway is they were trying to figure it out as they go. Yeah. Uh, and I found that actually incredibly freeing. It just helped my own ministry because I wasn't thinking, well, what would Luther say about this? Well, maybe that's interesting, but I can disagree with Luther and that's okay. That's okay. Or I can work it out in a different way, pulling in some other resources too. And uh, I've grown in lots of ways. I love pulling in, you know, Catholic theologians or, you know, other kinds of Christian uh, background people to help think about issues because I, I think that wide, wider understanding is what the church can offer. I, I think, uh, yeah, he, he's got a lot of stuff, but I, I think that abrasive edge and the way he was reined back in by his friends was really helpful in a lot of ways. And also there were times when he went outside of that, and I think the, the worst part of that were... Uh, you know, especially the track he wrote that was uh, against the Jews and their lies, which had devastating effects uh, still in the world. Um, and we just have to own that as the dark side of, of w- what we bring with us from the past, for sure. I mean, I know the ELCA has statements repudiating those, that document in particular, but also just the way Lutheran Christians have either endorsed hateful actions or stood by and watched while it was happening and did nothing. Um, I know the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has similar documents as well. Those are the two major Lutheran groups in the U.S. anyway, and in, and including the Lutheran World Federation, which we're a part of. He would probably understand himself still to be a sinner who was corrupt in a lot of ways and imperfect and did rash things that he was would be ashamed of and should be ashamed of, and we should be ashamed of on his behalf, and we are. And we try to move forward just like how we do in our own lives. To go back to the first of the 95 theses, if our whole lives are about repentance, we've got we to gotta own that dark stuff so we can be forgiven and try to go a different way. 
Yeah. There's there's so much that we can learn and, and have learned and continue to learn about our faith, our life through the lens of uh, Martin Luther and the stuff that he has done for this church. Um, and I know that you and I continue to think about, okay, this is what the last 500 years has been. What is the next 500 years going to look like and how are we going to be a part of that? And there's some exciting things that we are working on now to really make that come alive and, and then we'll let you know what that is when it becomes available. But thank you, Jeff, for having this conversation today. And, uh, and you too. I like to, I always feel like Marty's an old friend. I feel yeah, like I right. have that relationship with him now, especially when I read him still and think, gosh, she's being a jerk or man, that's really insightful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or what do you mean by this? You know, just, uh, as a conversation partner, I do, I do appreciate his work for sure all these years later. And if you w would like to learn a little bit more about Luther yourself and, and haven't had an opportunity, there's going to be some links in our show notes about places that you can go. There is that PBS special that we did watch recently, and it is available to watch online. There is a couple of uh, Luther movies, one that uh, Hollywood put out that... Uh, yeah, great one. Um, Thriven actually helped produced that one as well. I believe it was 2002. Uh, it might have been 2003, but I think it's 2002, and it is called, wait for it, Luther. Luther. <laughs> uh, with Joseph Fiennes of Shakespeare and Love fame. It's pretty good. There is a downside to it, and that is if you don't know who the other players are, they don't do a very good job of saying, hi, I'm Philip Melanchthon. Right. They don't right. do that in the movie, so you kind of have to do a little decoding if you're not familiar with everybody. But it does a nice job of telling the story, I think, um, which, which is helpful. Makes it, again, just makes it real. So, and, and once again, if you have any ideas on how you might like to see the church or you think the, the direction that the church is going or just a, what would a new Reformation look like, we would love to hear from you. You can leave a, a note on our um, blog twoballpastors.com on our Facebook, facebook.com backslash twoballpastors, or feel free to reach out individually to Jeff or myself, and we will um, maybe talk about this a little bit more on a future podcast. So we do have some exciting podcasts coming up, and uh, we are nailing down some, some guests to come on, and we've uh, at our Two Bald Pastors conference and networking event, we had some uh, brainstorming ideas and, and really some exciting direction um, probably in the new year for this ministry that we are doing with all of you. So we'd love to hear from you and uh, leave a show notes rating or reach out to us, like I said. And we are the Two Bald Pastors, helping you connect your faith with your life. I'm Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Sinobaldo. We hope you have a great day and a blessed week. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. That's what a couple of glasses of wine does to you, people. <laughs>